I don't, uh, I don't play this card very often. Uh, my name is Steve. Uh, I am the senior pastor here, and I'm going to play that card. I know I'm not king, but I'm still going to play the senior pastor card here, and I'm going to make an edict. From this moment on, all we can do is play 80s rock and roll songs for the offering. Come on now. And everybody of over 40 said, amen. amen. And there was much rejoicing. <clears throat> little Tom Petty, Heartbreakers, little Traveling Wilburys. Huh? Come on now, that's what I'm talking about. A little Dylan up here. It's great. Hey, <laughs> welcome to Hope Community Church, uh, all that it is. One of the things I, I really do enjoy, I am just a hair loud. And I'm going to yell in just a minute, so if you just turn me down just a little bit. Because um, <laughs> that's what I do. That's why you're here. The... Uh, one of the things I really do enjoy is being in these old buildings. And so uh, if you are aware of who, if you're not brand new here to Hope, we own this property as well as the other property. We moved into that property in 2003, and this one, uh, we purchased it in 2012 and moved in in 2013. Uh, we operate in both buildings. That building was built in 1895, making it, if you do the math, 123 years old. This building, the one we're in, not the front entrance and this back, those were added in the 1950s, early 60s, uh, but this particular property, I believe, was 1883, making it 135 years old. Tonight, I get the privilege of speaking at our, our other location uh, over in Lower Town, and that building is 1860-something. We don't own that building. We're just renting in the evenings, but that's where our, our, third, our well, third location, I guess, kind of, uh, is over there in Lower Town. And one of the cool things about that is you just feel this sense of history. So there are times when I'm even in this room and we're singing some of these old hymns, I can just almost hear the old Lutherans singing, singing the hymns. Granted, maybe a little bit differently, but the same hymns and the same, same words, you know, and, and it's just, it's a beautiful thing. We are not what would be called a liturgical church. In other words, uh, we don't follow the church calendar real tightly, but today, today is the beginning of what in church history we've called Holy Week, and this is the day that would be called Palm Sunday, and if you remember anything about going to church as a little kid, you got those palms and you waved them, you whacked your little brother with them or whatever, and, and it was what happened when Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem. And as he entered in Jerusalem, people waved these palm branches on like an oncoming king, and they welcomed him. And he came in on Palm Sunday, this day. Uh, if you go backwards following the Jewish calendar, this would be the day that we celebrate that. They say that today, and on Thursday, many of that same crowd are going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So one of the things we like to do, at least a little bit for Palm Sunday. Yes, we're going to get to the book of Exodus here in just a moment. Uh, uh, but one of the things we like to do is just, uh, just kind of celebrate that a little bit. I don't have any palms to give you. Uh, whatever, you can wave, grab a chair or something and wave it. Or I don't know, I guess not any chairs either. But if you don't mind, if you stand if you're able, and then uh, we're going to read this. And there's a portion where the crowd in the passage is going to respond, and it's in bold, and it says, I'll read together, and, and I'll even remind you, read this all together, and we're just going to read that and yell it kind of the way they would have at that time. We're reading from the Gospel of Luke. If you were here uh, during the 17 years when we went through the Gospel of Luke, uh, <laughs> you can see from chapter 9 of Luke until its, its end, 
that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He doesn't get there until 10 chapters later. But on ch from chapter 9 it says, and I like the way the English Standard Version says it, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, or other past, uh, say he's resolute, or he's going towards with a, with a purpose, set his face to Jerusalem. Now it takes him, like I say, 10 chapters to get there, but he does get there. And so I'm going to read this, but then when it comes to the bold part, we'll read it together. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, these owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Okay, everybody together here. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if, you keep, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You can be seated. So this, this being Holy Week, I just want to let you know a little bit of what kind of our, our rhythms or traditions are if you're brand new to Hope during this week. Uh, we normally have a good neighbor noon service, uh, but this year, just due to some, due to some complications, there won't, there won't be a good neighbor fellowship this year. We do, however, have in this sanctuary at 6 and then again repeated at 8 o'clock so that everybody can come is our Good Friday Service. It's always an experiential way to, to, to really let what Jesus Christ actually did for us land. It is one of the highlights of the year for us, and I, I encourage you to come for that, 6 and 8 p.m. Okay, like I said, we are getting to the, uh, the book of Exodus here. If you're brand new with us, we are 10 weeks in now. This is our 10th, 10th week in it. You can catch up. Just go ahead and read the, read the uh read the other chapters ahead of us, or you could listen to some of the sermons online as well. Uh, I really like, as kind of a summary of where we've been, uh, this quote that uh, last, yesterday I was driving back from visiting my mom, and uh, uh, I was listening to Pastor Cor, and, and really great, and I really like this quote that he used from Jen Wilkin. And it talks about, if you're familiar with it all, it's a story, the people of Israel have become very numerous, and they have become enslaved to uh, this nation called Egypt. And the king of Egypt, or what's called Pharaoh, uh, he is now keeping them in slavery and forcing them to do his will. And God hears this and is going to do something about it. 
And he's using Moses and his brother Aaron here, and they're going to be the ones that are going to get them free. But it doesn't go easy. And as we've seen the last few weeks, it's been really complicated. It doesn't gone well at all, at least from Moses' eyes, and especially from the leaders of Israel. They're going, this stinks. Things are getting worse for us. But from God's, excuse me, from God's perspective, he's like, this is awesome. It's exactly the way I want it to be. And so I like what Jen Wilkin here has to say about this. She says, let's think about what would have happened if this scene played out according to Moses' thinking. Let's say Moses went in and he and Aaron did everything they were supposed to and said everything just as they were supposed to. And that was it. They got to leave. Who gets the credit? Well, Moses and Aaron. They're like great negotiators. Let's say they do everything just right. And Pharaoh says, you know what? I'll just let you go. Who gets the credit? Pharaoh. Redemption is not easy because only one can have the credit for it. And so this is why he said it's not going to be easy, but it's going to happen in such a way that everyone will know that I am the Lord. By the way, that is the major theme of the book of Exodus. It's all these different things. God showing himself as delivering all. But you will know that I am the Lord. So let's say things had gone more easily and Israelites uh, got to leave with Moses at the outset. Who would know that God was, I am? Israel would, but would Egypt? No. But what we're going to see is that God will bring them out. Everyone will know. Everyone that he is God. That's what's going on here. Am I cutting in low? Is that just me? I'll move it. Maybe it's... Uh, that's what's going on here. Is this, this God wants to make it known that he is God. So, with that said, uh, today we are going to begin and, and walk into the plagues. Wireless microphones. <laughs> Bane of everybody's existence. All right, that's great. Thank you. Uh, and so, what, 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 what the plagues are going to begin. And so, there's going to be ten of them. And when we originally had planned out the series, uh, we were looking at maybe doing it through through now and just uh, maybe a week or two into summer, but then we decided oh, let's go all summer, just because 10 plagues in a week, that's what we were going to do, 10 plagues in one week. It's like, wow. And, and if you're a visitor with us and you, you know the church calendar, it's like, I think I'm going to go to Hope Community Church on Palm Sunday. It should be an uplifting, joyful message. Plagues, that's what you're getting. So we're not really good at planning. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm not, I'll just put blame where, it, where it's due. My staff is not very good at planning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I think I heard somebody say something about that once. Anyway, those of you who are engineer types, I do know there's a chart. It's a chart. Chart engineers are freaking out. Everything this guy's now saying is legit because he's got a chart. <laughs> this is by a guy by the name of Peter Enns. He's, he's written a commentary on Exodus. really quite good. I've really enjoyed it. What he's laid out, and sometimes theologians are, you know, Professors have just way too much time on their hands. He's taken the different plagues, and he includes uh, the snake, which happened, if you heard last week, they throw the snake down, or they throw the, the staff down, it turns into a snake, it's a miracle. So he includes all these miracles slash plagues. He would say there's 11 of them, whatever. I'm saying there's 10, because I don't think the snake is a, is a plague necessarily. It's, it's really hard for you to see this unless you have really good glasses, but the, the different... The different headings here, uh, on, the, on the, the left side here are all the different plagues or the different miracles or wonders that God is doing. And then across here, it talks about different ways that people or things have happened. So the first one is, can the magicians, uh, Pharaoh's magicians, can they reproduce it? 
And they can for the first three, the snake, the, the blood, and the frogs. Then, then what, in what place do the magicians beg Pharaoh, and they beg in a unique way. You beg Pharaoh, you'll see it as we get along going in the, in the plagues here. You're very careful how you, you, you push a king, but they are begging him, dude, this is not good. We need you to let the people go. Uh, they do that a couple times. Pharaoh begs Moses, please make these plagues stop. He does that six times. Uh, now we get into the issue of Pharaoh's heart hardening. You can see that there's uh, times when Pharaoh hardens his heart. There's time where it's just described that Pharaoh's heart is or is becoming more hard. And there's times where it sp- explicitly says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. One of the things we've dealt with in this uh, series so much uh, already. Then there's sometimes when the plagues go after everybody. And there's sometimes where the plagues eliminate Israel. Just the Egyptians get the plague. There's other, then talking about how uh, Moses is, excuse me, Pharaoh was confronted by Moses. Again, uh, there's sometimes where he goes early in the morning. There's sometimes when he just shows up at the palace. And there's other times where there's no confrontation whatsoever. It just happens. The plague is going to happen whether you don't get a chance to let the people go here. And then because he had way too much time on his hand, he spends time saying, whose staff was involved? Aaron's staff for the first four and Moses for the last three. But anyway. It is very interesting as you look at the plagues and what they're trying to get across. There's patterns. There's things that are happening. And I really think this is helpful by James uh, Montgomery Boyce uh, that, that helps us to understand a little more of what's being here. It's not just God is metering out punishment indiscriminately towards the Egyptians because the God of, of the Israelites is against Pharaoh. It is some of that, but to understand this a little bit more, this is helpful. In order to understand these plagues, we need to understand that they were directed against the gods and goddesses of Egypt and were intended to show the superiority of the God of Israel to the Egyptian gods. They were about 80, there were about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered with about three great natural forces, no forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, and the sky. It does not surprise us, therefore, that the plagues God sent against Egypt in the historic battle follow this three-force pattern. The first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four were against the land gods. And the four final plagues were against uh, the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. Okay, that's where we're going. So we're going to do three plagues today. First plague, the, the plague of blood. This is a picture of the 1956 movie, uh, where Charlton Heston is in, and you got to realize uh, this is, if you watch it now, you got to realize 1956, realize that color was not even invented till 1952 in the world. Okay, everything before that was black and white, and, and uh, that's a joke, but, but seriously, color television didn't exist. Most people in the 60s and early 70s did not have a color television. It's not until the 70s and for sure by the 80s. You have a color television. So give the movie its slack because you go, that's the most hokey special effect I've ever seen. It's not a special effect. When Aaron puts down the, the, uh, the, the staff into the water, some poor guy's down there going, cutting his arm, you know, getting blood out because underneath the water, or, or pink Kool-Aid or whatever it is, um, ketchup or whatever it is, they're really doing this. There are some really hokey special effects in the movie, but most of them are mechanical. They actually do this stuff mechanically. I have no idea why I'm going into this movie. But 
This is the plague of blood. So here we're going to go after it. The reason why it happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, we're in Exodus chapter 7 now. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. That's what the problem is. God is not just, hey, you know what would be a fun idea is just put some plagues on some people. Nope. There's a reason why he is punishing, why he is showing himself off in a mighty way to these particular people, and it's this reason. He will not obey me. He will not do what I've told him to do. He refuses to let the people go. So they make a plan. God says to Moses, he says, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. So plan is Moses waits on the banks of the river, and he's waiting for Pharaoh. Now, most of the historians and commentators on this think two things are possible here. That, that the Egyptians were actually known, especially the nobility, of being extremely clean people. That was a big deal. They, they didn't smell, and they, they were bathed a lot, and they'd, the men especially had cut their hair short so it, it would be clean. And, and that's why some of it, you know, like if you ever go into somebody's house and it's really nice and you just kind of take your foot and kind of mark up the, 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 the carpet that's going all one way and you just kind of can't stand it and you do it anyway, that's a little bit what God's doing when he's messing with them. Because it's like, you like to be clean? Yeah, here's this. Ugh, right? So, so he could be bathing and he could be doing a ritualistic thing with the Nile River kind of as a worship thing. And it could potentially be both. Could be. He says, confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that you may worship me, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. Again, that's what God's after, even to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. You will know that I am the Lord. Who this, uh, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. So just, if we just pay attention to what's said there, it's, it doesn't sound like there's an if here. There is going to be in the second one, but not in the first one. It just sounds like you've said you're not going to let them go. This is what's going to happen. That's at least according to the plan. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and the canals, over the ponds and the, all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Okay, so what's, going, what's, what's this all about here? And So I want to just hit uh, uh, Philip Reichen on this, and he's a little bit helpful. He says, the river of blood was the first of ten plagues that afflicted the Egyptians, rather than calling them plagues, the Bible prefers to call them miraculous signs and wonders. Nevertheless, the word plague expresses an important truth. The term comes from the Latin plaga, meaning a blow or wound, which is exactly what the plagues were. God said, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. The way God dealt with Pharaoh shows that, this, that his demands are non-negotiable. Every time Pharaoh encountered God, he was confronted with the same God making the same demands. I won't back down, right? God will never change, God never changed his terms or issued a counteroffer. This is because God never changes his terms. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purpose of his heart throughout all generations. So what is taking place is, under no, hear this, there's a showdown here between Pharaoh and God. Moses is the, Moses is the mediator, but between those Two. Now, 
uh, they go ahead and it's, it's, uh, they, it says that they implement this plan. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. So what we're missing here is the meeting. Because it says, go to the bank of the Nile and then talk to him while he's there. Say all this stuff. We don't ever get that meeting. It's really just an announcement anyway. Just tell them. So they did just as the Lord commanded. We shift right now to the actual implementation of the plague. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish on the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. And I love some of the details we're going to see today because it just, I want to say the word reeks, but that's, it does reek. Uh, it, it, it gives you the sense of like you're there. Like the, the author, I believe it was Moses, he, he, you can smell the dead fish. Now, I don't know if you've ever been. I, I love to stream fish, and every now and then you catch a portion of the river where for whatever reason, there are dead fish. It doesn't take many. And it's just like, oh, oh, gee, oh, not good, right? So that's what's happening here, this implementation of the plan. Here's the surprising thing, though. These, walker, these walking around street magicians, or whatever they are, they're able to do it. The, but the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. Now, there are two solid camps on this, as you read about this in different people's commentaries or historical looks at this. And some say what, they, what this is is totally a David Copperfield kind of thing. Who look over here, and then they, you know, somehow change, put some Kool-Aid in there, and then they make the water. Then it's, it's sleight of hand. The other camp is like, no, 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 no. That's not what it says at all. It just says that they supernaturally were able to call upon their, their, their gods, or in this, in this case, the Christian worldview would say, like, evil forces, the devil, and they were able to do something. I don't know. It doesn't say. Somehow they're able to do it. That's all we know for sure. They're able to do it. And as a result of that, it says, Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So just, just put yourself there. Mo Moses and Aaron say it's going to happen. They raise the staff. They put it in the water. Everything turns to blood. The magicians are able to pull it off. And Pharaoh, it says, his heart becomes hard. He wouldn't listen. You get the point. You don't need verse 23. You don't need the next verse. I already got the point. Verse 23 is just the icing on top of the cupcake because it really wants you to sense who this Pharaoh guy is. Instead, he turned huh, and went into his palace and did not, even, excuse me, did not take even this to heart. It's, it's, it, it, there's nothing new you learn in verse 23 except that Pharaoh is a three-year-old little girl who doesn't get his way, right? No offense, I could have picked a little boy, but this was the best picture on the whole interwebs. So that's, I'm not going to, no, no, midnight on the blood, I'm going to go into my palace. Poof. Pouty, Pharaoh goes to palace. <clears throat> Pharaoh, Pharaoh, whatever. Uh, that's it. That's what's happening here. And they want you to see that. That's who Pharaoh is. He's that stubborn. He's that hard of heart. Because his people are really going to suffer. And all the Egyptians, they're the ones who suffer. Dug along the Nile. Just, you got to find some drinking water. You, you, you can't live long. You can live long without food. You can't live long without water. 
you dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. For seven days, this is the condition. Hmm. They suffer. Plague number two. Plague number two. It's a bunch of frogs. And I'm thinking, how bad can this really be? It's not so bad. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, go to Pouty Pero in the palace and say to him there, let my people go so that they may worship me. If, here it is now, you're going to get another shot right here now. If you do that, then there won't be a plague. But he says, if you refuse to let them go, I'll send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. I love the detail here. They will come up into your palace and your bedrooms and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and your kneading troughs and you're going to open your glove compartment. They're going to be there. There's everywhere. The frogs will come upon you and your people and all your officials. Wow. Well, that's, that's the plan, right? That's what the Lord says to Moses. The, the meeting apparently doesn't go well. Again, we don't see this meeting. But then the Lord says to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Verse 6 says, so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. So Pharaoh refuses. He's refusing again. Maybe he doesn't even come out of the palace. And then he just, this is what's happening. The frogs, there's frogs, frogs everywhere, right? So verse 7, though, tells us that the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also make frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. Now, how do they do that? I don't know. It's going to be the last time they get to do any of this stuff, but they can't. They're able to make frogs come out of the, onto the, up out of the land, okay? Now, Again, whenever you read the Bible, you got to ask yourself, you got you to put yourself in a white space and do the math. Because what's going to happen in verse 8 makes what happens in verse 7 seem less dramatic. Okay? So here you've got, here you've got Pharaoh, and he says to his guys, hey, guys, this uh, wizard over here is doing some wizardry stuff. You do that. Great. So they summon, and there's frogs. There's more frogs. And Pharaoh goes, what would you naturally do here? You naturally say, sweet, you did the same frog thing as they did it. Okay, now make the frogs go away, right? I mean, that's logically what you do next. Uh-uh. <laughs> there ain't, they, they, they don't have that trick in the bag. There ain't no way to get rid of the frogs. There's frogs coming out of people's mouths. It's an actual picture of a kid who won a bet, I think. They can't do it. Now, I have to just throw, throw, toss a bone here to David Nelson. He's sitting right here, out him right here. He threw me this early in the series that he saw something on the interweb, so it had to be true. And he sent this to me, and it's a picture. It's, it's a little hard to see, but this is a guy's uh, seat of his car. There's two, four, six frogs in his car. And the guy's name is Lunga Bayella. Do you know this guy or just a, just a guy? Yeah, just a guy. So and he's, the question is, how would you deal with this? And there are four uh, I think there are 460 comments on it. How would you deal with this? And Barnabas Piper, uh, son of John Piper right down the street here, has the best answer. Probably should let God's people go, right? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that, that is 
Hashtag well played, my boy. Well played. So thank you for that, by the way. It's really, really great. So, uh, <laughs> but they can't get rid of the frogs. They can't get rid of the frogs. So just do in your mind's eye as best you can when you read the Bible. Well, where was Pharaoh just a minute ago? He was pouting. He's uh, hardened heart, getting harder. And now when we get to verse 8, he's actually calling for Moses and Aaron saying, get rid of the frogs. Would you get rid of the frogs? Just there's something that happens there, right? They can't get rid of the frogs. They can summon more. But Pharaoh says, if you do more, I'm dropping you. You're dead. No more frogs. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. And I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Whoa, sounds like game's over. So Moses says to Pharaoh, tell you what, I leave it to you, the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of all the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. We're going to push them back into the Nile. He says, now why would he do that? Why would he do that? Well, if Pharaoh says, I want this time, and then it happens right at that time, it's, it's, it's another way of saying, you will know that it's God, right? Now, that I get. What I don't get is Pharaoh's response, right? So if this were you, and you came and said, dude, can you get rid of the frogs? And Moses, when do you want me to get rid of the frogs? Your answer would be, how about now, right? And Pharaoh looks at his calendar and says, I got nothing going tomorrow at 2. That sounds good. He says, tomorrow. Okay. I mean, it's soon. Maybe it was in the middle of the evening, like, you know, morning or whatever, but tomorrow. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and all your people. They'll remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled in heaps, and the land reeked of them. They didn't ask about that. They said, just get rid of them. They got rid of them. You got these stinky, smelly frogs that are there. So you think, great. Moses is back saying, hey, let's work out the conditions of letting the people go. Aha! Fake news. Sorry, Should, I shouldn't. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just the Lord had said. So, third plague. Third plague. This is an actual picture of the, a mayfly infestation. I think the date on this and date and location is Illinois in uh, 2016. It was on a webpage describing how mayfly, you know anything about mayflies, and I like to trout fish, and so mayflies are a big deal. They, they have this big hatch. They, they hatch all year long, but there's something special, and every now and then there's this of biblical proportions, which comes from this, just mayflies. In fact, this article was talking about how they had to close a bridge because there was six inches of mayflies on the deck of the bridge. You couldn't drive without just sliding as if it was ice and slip off the edge of the bridge. It's crazy. So here's this next plague, which is going to be the plague of gnats. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your so there's this is not up, this is not a go talk to him again. He already said he let the people go. He's not letting them go. Boom, instant plague. Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land 
of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. Now, what kind of bugs were they? We don't know. It's possible. I'm not even saying it's likely, but it's possible that the Hebrew word that's used here for gnats in that day, as that word evolved, it became the word for lice. So I want to be careful and just be, not, not give you that, oh, it was lice. Not necessarily. But it could have been lice. So that would make sense there where it says the gnats came on the people and the animals are just all over them, right? Remember this, the Egyptians like to be clean. Who doesn't, right? Doesn't matter though. They were just nasty bugs everywhere. Just think of just being somewhere. I don't know if you've been out in the woods and all of a sudden you breathe and you breathe some bug and it's just, ugh. Actually, they say if you are trying to survive in the boundary waters and you're lost and you had a list or the, you're out, out west somewhere and you had a list of things you could take, 30 things, and they make you, you ever played that where you have to rank the things you have? What will you take with you to survive? Number one on the list, bug spray. They say you will go crazy without bug spray in a matter of 48 hours. You're just done. You just, you just start running in the woods aimlessly. You can't think. This is what's going on here. There are bugs. You want bugs? I got bugs. Replaces the frogs, okay? So this time, magic boys ain't got nothing. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. They have nothing. So th this time, the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, right? This is an actual picture of a professor who studies bees and figures it'd be a good idea to spread himself with honey or whatever it is. Those are bees everywhere. There are, I don't know what it's like. Uh, uh, I'm just going to lay this card down and maybe you'll get, think less of us. But we had a dog Years ago, our first of three dogs that we've had, and the dog had fleas. Could not get rid of the fleas, no matter what we did. And I would wake up at night, and I knew, and I could see the bites. I was being bit by fleas. Now, I'm a lot bigger than a flea. It's just a flea. There's just something disgusting about bugs on you, right? They have bugs everywhere, and they're freaking out about this. And so they start to, uh, they start to beg Pharaoh, and they say, this is the finger of God. That's all they say. But it's implied, dude. Dude. I know if we tell you to let the people go, it sounds like we're being insubordinate, but dude, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. There's your plagues. So what do we do with that? What do you do? There's a lot of things you can do. I had a lot of thoughts as I thought about the plagues, and I knew I was going to be preaching this for the last three weeks. What do you, what do, you do with this? Happy Palm Sunday. Happy beginning to Holy Week. Yeah. Um, but the thing that kept, re kept coming to me in, in this way, two things that I read, and I wasn't even studying for this sermon. I just was reading. Uh, hit me, and I felt like, you know, this is the direction I want to go. And, 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 the, and the direction was this. As you look at this issue, what's taking place here is God and Pharaoh having a showdown because Pharaoh is not willing to let God be God in his life. In other words, he's not obeying God, and so therefore God is metering out punishment or justice upon him for being unjust. Not, not only is keeping the people in slavery, that's part of it too, 
but also just not obeying God. Okay? And so, uh, so the idea here is the justice of God. Now, I know a lot of things about Westerners because I is one. And I know that, you know, we are considered Westerners and, and the, the Bible's an Eastern book. And so there's a lot of times we come at it with presuppositions that we hold as Westerners. Let me give you two that I'm pretty sure in some way, shape, or form, you hold, I hold, we hold. Okay? First one, we don't like the justice of God. We don't, we don't like the concept of a God who's just. We like the concept of a God who's loving and merciful and kind of a spiritual Santa Claus and some of those things. But a God who actually has judgment and just, not so much. And if we can kind of fathom that one, that brings me to the second one. I want justice for you, but mercy for me. Right? Now, that's a Western thing. That's not necessarily other parts of the world. In fact, one of the things that people, why they reject Christianity in the Western world is because of the justice of God. But that's not true in other parts of the world. They actually struggle with their being a God who's loving like that. I'll give you an example. Tim Keller loves to share this about a guy by the name of uh, Miroslav Volf. And uh, Miroslav grew up in Croatia. Let me read the quote from, and this, I read this quote, I was preparing for a class that I teach on communicating God's word to our interns on Wednesday morning, and I read this quote and went, Boom. That's exactly what we're talking about. The Christian philosopher Miroslav Volf, in Exclusion and Embrace, argues that belief in a God of judgment, a point of contradiction in the Western world, is crucial resource for nonviolence. In other words, we're, we believe in nonviolence. We believe in that's not the way we solve justice is to go out and, and eye, for, you know, eye for an eye or, or just vengeance, right? Speaking as a Croatian whose people experienced the ethnic cleansing of the 1990s, so just pause right there. Some of you don't remember that, but this whole area, there was ethnic uh, war, and people would come in with guns and machetes and wipe out villages and do horrific things to the people that kept as survivors, as slaves, or as human trafficking, or all kinds of things. It was horrific. He argues uh, that, proposes that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. If victims of violence believe there is no God or no God who will bring a final justice on the earth, they will feel justified or at least provided incentive to pick up we weapons in vengeance. So Wolf argues the only way to prohibit recourse to violence by ourselves is to fully believe that God alone has that right and that will square all accounts someday. To a Croatian, the justice of God is an A doctrine to them. They love it. Because someday, somehow, there will be justice for what happened. Never on this earth, but someday there will. And yet the Christian way is, that's true, and yet the Christian way is also one of love. The Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Thessalonians is writing to people who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have come from a background uh, not as followers, and they've become followers of Jesus, and now they're getting very persecuted. In fact, some of them uh, even to the point of being imprisoned or killed for being followers of Jesus. And Paul talks about that, and he talks about justice, but he never talks about revenge. 
And he says this to them. This is the church in Thessalonica. He says, we always ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. What's he saying? There is coming a day of judgment, Thessalonians. There's coming a day. And it will come and all will be made right. All will be made right. And those who don't trust in Jesus Christ will have to pay for their own sin. Wow. The crime against a holy God, an infinite God, is an infinite crime and demands an infinite penalty. It's like, whoa, that's heavy. Now here's what I know. That, that we, as Westerners, want to look at others that way and not just ourselves. So I just finished a novel. Uh, I don't even remember how I got turned on to this novel. It was recommended or something. It's by a Swedish author. And what hooked me, I, I downloaded a sample, and what hooked me was... It's about this town in Sweden, but he doesn't make a big deal about that because it's got a translator, obviously. And it's this small town, kind of a poorer town, but they're all about hockey and, the, and high school hockey or the equivalent in Sweden would be high school and then semi-pro hockey is what it basically is. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's where I grew up. This is my hometown. This is Hibbing, Minnesota. So I was hooked in the book. And it's, it's very interesting. It's so true of my community. And in the book, I won't, I won't give it all away, and I want to I warn you, it's, a, it's, not, it's not necessarily a Christian book. It's, I don't know whether or not uh, Frederick Bachman is a believer or not. It doesn't, doesn't say, uh, but it's, it's got some rough edges to it. Uh, it's got some language and different things. And one of the things that makes it rough is, is this. The, 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 there's many, many people who have written about in the book. It's got more characters than I've ever read, really, in a novel in a long, long time. But one of the main characters is this kid who grows up, and he is a phenom. And this town, the town's name is Beartown, becomes something on the map because of this kid. This kid is kind of the savior of the town, and their hockey program now becomes a big deal, even though economically the town is going down. And all of a sudden now, there's something again. We're the bears from Beartown, they say. And it's a big deal, and this kid is it. And, and they, they win the game that will put them into the championship game. And everybody's, a, this is fantastic. And on that night, he holds a party at his house. He has absentee parents, and he has this wild party. They all get drunk, and he sexually assaults a prominent family's daughter in that, in that party. She's shocked by it all. Uh, she's 15 years old at the time, and she doesn't know what to do with it. She finally tells her dad, who then tells the police. You see where this is going, right? 
So now, what's justice here? What's justice? I mean, this person has obviously been wronged, and they demand justice. I can only imagine as a parent what I would be like, right? But this town is saying, we've waited all our lives for this. We're nothing. We're, we're, we're nothing, and we finally become something. Couldn't you wait until after the championship game? And he doesn't. He waits. They, they wait until the moment the, the bus is boarding to take the kids to the championship game, and the police come on there, and they take the kid off the bus. And the town's in an uproar, and it starts to divide the town because what is justice here, right? And I read a paragraph in there. I went, oh, my gosh. This is exactly it. It says this. Hate can be a deeply stimulating emotion. The world becomes much easier to understand and much less terrifying you to divide everything and everyone into friends and enemies, we and they, good and evil. The easiest way to unite a group isn't through love, because love is hard. It makes demands. Hate is simple. So the first thing that happens in a conflict is that we choose a side, because that's easier than trying to hold two thoughts in our heads at the same time. The second thing that happens to is that we seek out facts that confirm we want to, what we want to believe, con- comforting facts, ones that permit life to go on as normal. The third thing is that we dehumanize our enemy. There are many ways of doing that, but none is easier than taking her name away from her. And the rest of the, the time when the town speaks of this young lady, they don't use her name, they say that girl or, or a negative slur. And I would submit to you that we do that. I would submit to you that's us too. That I want justice for those who've wronged me, but I want mercy for me. The Apostle Paul makes it really, really clear. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Jews hated Gentiles, viewed them as dogs. Gentiles saw Jews as weird, you know, disgusting people. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. It's level ground before the cross. And all are justified freely by God's, by grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Not because I'm better than the other person. I'm only forgiven because I've trusted in Jesus Christ. That's it. God presented, uh, God presented Christ as sacrifice atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed before and unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just And the justifier, the one who declares all things to be just and the one who doesn't let sin go unpunished and yet he punishes Christ so those who believe can be forgiven. The only difference between me and anyone else is that I am forgiven. Let me just give you a little self-test here to see if you fall into this the way I fell into this this week. As we read this story of the first three plagues, does anyone in the room put themselves as Pharaoh? Neither did I. Neither did I. But I am Pharaoh. And you're Pharaoh. Let's pray together. God, I pray that we would look at your power and wonder and might and justice in a way this week as we ponder Good Friday and Easter that blows our minds. That we'd be people who say, Amen, Lord. 
and I need it more than anybody else. And I know, Lord, there are people in this room who've been wronged, maybe economically, maybe through abuse, or maybe through sexual assault. And I know it is very, very tricky not to want to move into hate. Lord, you promised justice. You promised justice. Either Jesus Christ will pay for those sins or they will be paid for. We trust you in that. But I pray for a gift for us too, that you give us a gift of not having bitterness and not having unforgiveness. Not that we are saying no to justice, but realizing it's yours. You do that. And if truth be told, if I screamed for justice, it would first have to land on me and I wouldn't take my next breath. So God, I pray that you'd make us people not like Pharaoh. Oh God, break our hearts. Have us be people who don't just cry out to you when times are hard as he did. But we cry out to you. I pray for that for people here for the very first time. Maybe they just want to say yes to Jesus Christ right here. Right as we sing this last song. Would you give them the courage right now, right there, to say yes to you as Savior and as Lord. We praise in Jesus' name.